I'm going to talk to you this morning a little bit about the the subject of the human soul. You know, we live in a very pluralistic world, which simply means that there's all kinds of ideas floating around about all kinds of stuff, all sorts of things, uh, especially about things that are spiritual. I mean, you can get stuff from the Bible, you can pick up something from a movie, and then you watch a couple of Oprah shows, you're all set. (laughs) Especially when you talk about things like the soul, lots and lots of ideas. The question is, what do you think about your soul? What is it? What constitutes it? How is it? How does it function? How do you direct it? How do you control it? Right? Is it a kind of ghostly, fixed aura that uh, is sort of otherworldly and unchanging that uh, is caught in our bodies until we die and then it sort of floats away? A lot of movies will give you that perspective. Or is the soul more earthy than that? Is it something that's actually engaged with and influenced by what happens in our everyday lives? In Christian thought, historical Christian thought, the view was not that the soul was this fixed, unchanging thing, but that in fact, the soul is, 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 is a kind of uh, malleable, like Plato, kind of a malleable thing. And uh, a changing thing. That the soul is a kind of created energy that God created in us that flows out of us. And it's this flowing thing that engages with the world. You know, if you take a fire hose and you turn it on, I mean, the only thing, you you can't really grab it. All you can really do is direct it. And that's kind of the notion of the Christian soul is that we're, we're shooting, man, we're going. And the question is, is not so much can you grab it as much as it is can you direct it appropriately. And so a lot of Christian thoughts about where are you directing your soul because wherever you direct your soul, your soul takes the shape of that thing. It takes the shape of the experiences and the thoughts you have. Our souls are influenced by human custom, influenced by circumstances, influenced by the opinions of others whom we value. It's influenced and it pulls us. The things around us pull our soul into them. Uh, The critical issue then for the soul is, where is it directed in your life? Or another way to ask that is, what do you love? Because what you love begins to define you. What you love will give your soul shape. That means if if you're not careful, you'll love bad things or love choose to love good things. If you choose to love good things, your soul will be good. If you choose to love bad things, you enter the land of the sock. You're in trouble, right? Jesus, because he understood that the soul is shaped by what it loves, He made statements like this in Matthew 6. For where your treasure is, in other words, what captures your attention, because what you treasure is what you love. For where your treasure is, he says, there your heart, which is another word for the soul, there your heart will be also. No one knows exactly what the soul is like, but the notion that it's constantly flowing, the notion that that it takes the shape of the objects that it pays attention to and where its affection lies is clear. This is why. We're told in scripture to make sure we love God first. Why? Because if our love is for God first, that shapes our soul before we love anything else. 
If we just love things, the things we try to love takes our souls take shape in and we can go amiss and awry. And we'll see that in a minute. Remember the famous text, Matthew 22. This is Jesus again. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. What's he saying? Focus your, you know, your, your uh, fire hose on God. Because if you can love him first and love him with this impulse of your soul, then you'll be in a position to love other things. Then, this is the first and greatest commandment, but then you can love your neighbor and other created things appropriately. Because you first loved God. We are called to love God first because we need to love God first because everything else is really nothing. Let me explain what I mean. If you remember from Christian catechism when you were a kid or Bible school or uh, uh, Sunday school, you might have run into this phrase, ex nihilo. What ex nihilo means is out of nothing. Everybody say nothing. We understand that the whole world was created out of nothing. We see that in texts like 11.3 of Hebrews. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. The whole universe at God's command. So that what is seen is not made out of what was visible. So everything that's seen is made out of what was not visible. It was made out of nothing. Everything you see is made out of nothing. That means... That the foundation of the whole universe is nothing. <laughs> the only reason created things have substance, the reason there's, this wood is still here, this floor is still here, my body's still here, yours or those chairs you're sitting on are still here, in Christian thought, is because God lends substance, lends things his substance. You've probably heard this statement God is not only the creator, but the sustainer of what he created. Right? He's the sustainer. What does that mean? That means God is the one who's responsible. His actual presence gives things substance and reality or gives things footing. Without God's engagement, continued engagement in the created world, the world would fly apart. Things would pale back into nothingness. They came out of nothing. God sustains them. If he stops sustaining them, they slip back into nothing. Right? That's why you have texts like Colossians 1. He is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him, by God, all things are created. Things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All this stuff is created by God and for God. He is before all things. Everybody say before. If you let him be before all things, things matter. He is before all things, and in him, what? Read it with me. All. The thing that gives the world and the, world, the, the, the creation around us, gives it stickability, is God himself. Because without God, it all spins into nothing. And, and you read, as you read eschatological texts, in other words, future casting, end of the world texts, if you read those, you, you read descriptions how when he lets go of some things, he stops holding them together. And they just sort of fall apart. Why? Because he's the one holding it all together. The reason we're here is because he's holding us together. Right? Okay. God wants us to enjoy created things. We read texts like 1 Timothy 6, hope in God, the scripture says. Put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for what? 
our enjoyment. God wants you to enjoy your stuff. God wants you to enjoy your friendships. God wants you to enjoy your car. God wants you to enjoy having money. God wants you to enjoy uh, position, that you have some, some power to change things in the world. God wants you to enjoy your sexuality. God wants you to enjoy your... God wants you to enjoy food. God be praised. Right? God wants you to enjoy your body. I mean, he does things, but but he wants us to understand that we can only enjoy them when we love them properly. Everybody say properly. Which means you, you can love things improperly. Improperly. See, loving things properly is loving them in context. And the context is God's the creator. So if I, you know, have some money, which I don't have a lot of this morning, if I have some money... And, and uh, it's nothing wrong with loving the money if I love God first. And what that means is I, I look at God and I love him with all my heart, mind, and soul. And I say, thank you. Thank you for provision. Thank you that I have, thank you I can buy food. Right? So in the context of seeing God in my life, then all of a sudden I can love things appropriately. Then things are gifts. Things are properly ordered. They're in context as God being the creator. And I can love these things in that context. That's when we're loving things rightly. We're loving things in right order. If you don't love them rightly, what you're really doing is you're loving them outside of the view of God. So you're sort of focused on them. Here's God and his son. You're turning from the light. You just want to love it for yourself. You know, and anytime you do that, and you pull it away from thanksgiving, you're, biblically speaking, your soul is in trouble. Why? Because God is the only being who is not ex nihilo. The only one who's not out of nothing is God. So God is the only one who is substance. God is the only one who has footing. God is the only one that gives us reality. And if I try to love God and then love things, I'm stepping into reality because his reality is in that context. But if I want to love it by myself and I want to get it over and love it just for itself, I'm trying to love something that is nothing. And when you try to love something that is nothing, your soul starts going the direction of Nothing. But when we love them appropriately, with a view toward God, we love them rightly and can actually enjoy them. My friend, a good friend of mine has a car that's a fancy car. It's um, a Bentley. $300,000 car. I'm out in L.A. He showed me the car. I said, dude, that's a sweet, sweet ride. He said, why don't you out here for a couple days? He said, why don't you take it? No way. He said, no, I'm serious. He said, said, to me, this is, you you know, he's a... Very wealthy guy. He said, you know, God's blessed my life. He said, I love when people use my stuff. So he said, here, take it and use it. So I take the keys and I'm driving that Bentley around for two days. Now, I guarantee you that how I drove that Bentley was different than how I drive my car. (laughs) Number one, I didn't bring McDonald's stuff and stick it all over in there. Number two, I drive my car like it's stolen. I didn't drive his car like that. The whole time I'm driving, I'm thinking, oh, you know, oh, there's my friend's car. I enjoyed it, but I enjoyed it properly because it wasn't mine. It wasn't defining who I was. I wasn't glommed onto it going, ah, oh, I'm driving like a rich man. <laughs> yeah, da, 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 da. 
It didn't make me feel better than... See, I, it wasn't forming my soul. I, did, I didn't just glom onto it and try to let myself become what it was. I thanked my friend and it was in context. See, the church fathers believed that the fall of humankind messed with us in a way that caused us to not be able to love things rightly. When we were, according to the the thought, is that when human beings are created before failure, before the fall, we were right. We were upright. We were righteous. Which meant we saw rightly and we loved rightly. And so we could stand and see God and see the things and love God and love the things. It was appropriate, it was right, and it glorified God. And it was substantive because it was in the context of God. It it didn't lose its context. According to Christian thought is that when humans sinned, we bent this. It got all broken up. And not only did we bend, but we almost we became falling upon ourselves. And we became all twisted up like wicker furniture has wood that's all twisted we get the word wicked from that which is the word wicked when it says you're wicked all theologians mean is that you cannot see or love things appropriately you're loving things wrongly You're not seeing God. You're loving things for yourself. And you're loving, in a way, yourself. You don't really, you don't even really love the money. You're so wicked that you just love how it makes you feel when you hold it. You're wicked. All about where your soul is being formed. When we love God with all our hearts, when we make him the focus of our love first, we're loving something that isn't ex, ex nihilo. We're loving something that actually has substance. And when we do that, all other loves matter. Then we can love things and enjoy them. It's because he gives things that have no wholeness in themselves, his wholeness. He gives things that are really out of nothing because they're based in nothing. He gives them substance with his very presence. But when we try to love things outside of that context, when we try to, you know, where we, we no longer look at God as the creator and the giver of the good, when we start trying to glom our soul onto things outside of the context of representing and giving thanks to God, we actually are throwing ourselves toward nothing, which means we are moving toward non-existence, which means we feel emptiness because there's nothing there. That's why when you love things, it's empty. You just want to get more. You have money, more. You have this, more. I need more. You you always feel that whenever you get stuff, you need more. Why? Because there's nothing there. It was the great king of Israel, Solomon, who the scripture tells us he was the richest king that had lived, ever lived. They used to pile silver, not gold, but silver in the city because it was like stones. They were so wealthy. And the scripture, and they would pay foreign nations with silver, but make them buy stuff from Israel with gold. Rich, rich guy. He had 
Anything he wanted, he claims in Ecclesiastes. He lists everything. Anything he wanted to make, anything he wanted to create, anyone he wanted to have. There was no limits. He said, whatever impulse I had. He had a thousand wives, which seems a little odd, but <laughs> seems like you'd figure it out at about two that this ain't working. <laughs> anyway, he did not deny himself anything. And when he says in his book, Ecclesiastes, he says, I got anything I could get. Whatever I whimmed towards, and it's all nothingness. Vanity. Why? Because he's loving things out of context. This is the problem. In his work, The Confessions, Augustine wrote in the 400s, quote, For wherever the soul, the human soul, turns itself other than to you, God, it ends up being fixed in sorrow, emptiness. Even if it's fixed upon beautiful things, external to you and external to itself, which would nevertheless still be nothing if they did not have their being from you. He's saying God's the sustainer. Don't try to love things. It won't end well. This is why the texts of the Bible say things like this in 1 John 2. Do not love the world. He's talking about this inappropriate, incarnatus love. Well, you put it first. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, when the love of the Father is not there. There's no consciousness of God here. What ends up happening is everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lusts of the eyes, the boasting of what he has or does, it doesn't come from the Father. If you're not connecting it, it's just from the world. And when it comes from the world, if you're loving things that come from the world, and only the world and not the Father, you don't see that context. The world and its desires, what? Pass away into what? Nothing. You just wasted your life. The energies of your soul the fire hose of your soul on nothing. He says, the world is desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God, if you can connect with the will of God, if you can connect with God, all of a sudden you found footing. You found something that doesn't pass away. Something that lives forever. This is not saying that the world is evil. It's saying that it's easy to love things wrongly. It's easy to love things in a way out of their context where God's not in the context. And when it's out of context, it loses its meaning. When, when you love temporal things first without a view towards God, everything gets out of whack in your soul. The soul tries to find rest. That's what's going on. Your soul's pouring out. It's trying to find rest, but you can't find rest in nothing. There's no foundation for nothing. So your soul's always pouring more. I got it. The only one who is whole is God. He's the only one that can give us wholeness. That's why earlier in this confession book that I just quoted from, from Augustine, he wrote, when you are poured out upon us, you're not wasted on the ground. Our lives aren't wasted. You, you raise us upright. You take this, you de-incurvatus us, and you make us, you raise us upright. When you get involved with our lives, all of a sudden we're straight again. We're redeemed and I can see God and love things rightly. And so he says, you raise us up right. You are not scattered, but you reassemble us. We don't spin into nothingness. 
Because when we just try to love things, we keep moving. Our souls move toward nothingness, paleness. In fact, if you want to know what the idea of hell is, hell is really the notion that when you leave this world, you're in the trajectory of ex nihilo. You never die. You know, there are different scholars. They read the New Testament. Some people like to focus on the fire and the, the, the physical nature of it. And, you know, there's all kinds of discussion about this. Uh, evangelicals discuss about this because there's conflicting metaphors. You know, you have fire that's, that, or you have hell that's supposed to be the darkest place in the world, and yet hell is, has fire. And there's conflicting metaphors, which tells some theologians this, there's more metaphor here than, than the point of Scripture is not so much not so much the physical description as what's going on. And if you've never suffered as a person, you might just glom on to physical torment as hell, as the thing you want to scare people. In our culture, it's, it's laughed at. But I say, what's not laughed at? What's not laughable? I stepped into my sister's room when I was 18 years old. I was out of school for about a year. I called out to her. Couldn't find her. Went up to her room, opened the door, and she was there with a razor blade, cutting her skin. She wasn't trying to kill herself. She was cutting her skin and bleeding. I'd never heard of cutters. This was 1973, 74. She's cutting herself. I said, I'm in tears. What are you doing? What are you doing? She looked at me, a little dead in her eyes. She said, I just... I just want to feel something. See, physical pain is a smaller matter to the pain of the soul that's moving toward nothingness. One of the scary things, might not scare you, but one of the scary things about space movies <laughs> is when a guy gets cut from the ship and he's floating in a spacesuit and he's out in a trajectory and he can't make his way back. He's just, he's floating out all by himself. No one there in the darkness of space. No one with him. He's floating out. The only hope for a guy like that is death. I hate images like being buried alive. Oh my gosh. I mean, I can't watch movies like that. I can't, see, I can't watch a scene like that. But if, if I was buried alive... And the, the torment of that moment, I mean, I'm not even in physical pain, but the torment of that moment, my only hope, my only hope, my only hope would be to fall asleep. My only hope would be to die. But imagine being in a dimension where you've launched out because you've loved only things and you've never loved God. And you're launched out into eternity away in absolute loneliness, in absolute darkness, in absolute aloneness, and you have no hope of death. That'll scare the hell out of you. My friend, the reason you can't love things is because that is the way to hell. It's your soul is trying to grab onto something that leads to nothing. Paul, when he addresses this with the people, he says, when you focus on things and you love them wrongly, you become depraved. Why? Because your soul is formed by what it loves. And if you try to love something that's based on nothing, your soul will be poured out into nothing. 
So Paul writes in Romans 1 about the depraved. He says, they, these depraved, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worship and serve created things rather than the creator. What do you love? You... I mean, don't misunderstand me. God made things beautiful. They made them full of grace and they capture your attention. I put a pile of money up here. Somebody, oh, I'd like that money. I mean, it's beautiful. It has some grace to it. It might help us, you know. But what we have to realize is nothing has beauty or grace. The only reason it has beauty or grace or anything is because of God. If we pull God out of it, we try to love it alone, there's no beauty or grace. It pales and you have nothing. Money will actually, actually destroy you. The love of money will be the root of all kinds of evils. And you know what evil is in biblical thought? Evil isn't this, isn't this malevolent thing. Evil is the lack of thump, something. Evil is like cold. What is cold? Cold isn't something. It's a lack of something. What is it, the lack of heat? If you take away all heat and you get to absolute zero, can you add cold? No, because cold is not a thing. Evil is not a thing. It's the absence of a thing. Just like dark. What is dark? Is it a thing? No, it's the absence of light. You can always add more light. If you go to perfect pitch, perfect darkness with zero light, can you add darkness? No, why? Because darkness isn't a thing. Evil is not a thing. If you're evil, you're just absent God. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What is he saying? You're loving the created thing instead of the creator. You could do that with a friendship. You could do that with a job. You could, some of you could do that because you're in high school and you have an opportunity. To, I was just talking with someone this morning about friendship. And here's this challenge. Do I love my friends more than my values? Do I love my friends? Am I seeing God in the context of my friendship? Or do you, are you more interested in your friends liking you? I am telling you, your soul will be formed by that and you will move toward evil. Augustine's example of this is so brilliant. He basically is saying, listen, your life will lose meaning. Your life will lose meaning if you love things too much. It's like, he said, he said, things are like syllables. And just like when you communicate, you use a syllable and then the next syllable to form a word and then the next word and the next word. Unless you get off the syllables and get off the words, you will never have understanding. You will have no content. It's not by saying a syllable that communicates content. And when you love things too much, you take them out of context. It's like just saying a syllable. Wah. Ah. Wah. You, you look like an idiot. Because you don't, it's no context. It's not comprehensible. It has no meaning because I've got to say water. Oh, water. It wasn't until I got away from the wah and I got to the tur that you get it. But then I've got to add, if I want more context, because just one word doesn't give a lot of context. I might be saying, have a glass of water. Or, water the lawn. Or, she broke her water. <laughs> Those are all really very different things, aren't they? 
determined by context. He's saying that when you love a thing, a friendship, a situation, a job, a car, money, and you love it too much, your life is basically going, whoa! you go you're out of context you're a nut you're worthless alright let me close with this not only is the notion that you have to watch what you love because what you love forms you just and that's one of the reasons the Bible says to pray or to read the Bible or to or to or to work as unto him. He's trying to make sure you understand. Your soul is constantly moving. I mean it's constantly pouring out. I mean this is what you do. You can't grasp it. You just pour. And if you're not careful, if you don't really know where you're pouring to, you make a mess. That somebody else is going to have to clean after we're leaving. <laughs> Some of you, your whole life's about making a mess. You're just pouring out. That's you. Well, or you try to pour yourself into something, you know. So, Pastor Lady, come up here, quick. Okay, here's here's something. This is the thing. Not come here, bring it here. Okay, so, okay, hold it apart, kind of stretch it. Okay. So if I try to pour myself into something without God's context, all of a sudden it 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 is it's a mess. And it just disintegrates. <laughs> Your soul's constantly pouring out. It just is. It's constantly pouring out. So what God says is direct it. So when we get up in the morning, we say, okay, let me spend a little time in God's Word. Because if I spend my time pouring into God's Word, oh, my life starts getting forming. Or if I spend time in a friendship rightly, then my life becomes pouring. If I, if I approach my job rightly and I do it rightly, then my life will be poured out right. It'll have some, it'll have some form. It's right. It's appropriate. I'm loving rightly. All of a sudden, my life has meaning. Right? More water. Right? But... But you can't just pour into one thing because you keep pouring into one thing you start spilling over because you're pouring into one thing. You can't. You've got to have a balanced life. And then on top of that when you're trying to pour here comes temptation. And then your boss says something weird to you. God, dude! (laughs) You are always flowing. Your soul is always releasing. It will be very difficult for you to other than at best keep yourself contained as much as you can. But you will never do it perfectly. Before you die, you will never get it down perfectly. We're all just kind of a fire hose mess. You know, thank God people love us enough to get around us and get splashed by us. It's, it's a messy deal living. It's a messy deal. But you can make it better by doing simple things like loving God with your heart and doing some disciplines and learning to work and do what you do rightly. You'll find out God will make it sweeter and make it better. And we will just live well. God bless you. Go back.
Amen. Wow. I'm going to invite ushers if they would come as we just prepare for communion this morning and as our worship team returns back to the stage. You know, in a few moments, as a family, as a community, as the church, we're going to be sharing communion, a very important part of who we are and what we do, a very important part of our, of our focus this morning. We will hold in our hand a, a wafer that represents the body of Christ. We hold in our hand a cup, maybe filled with grape juice or wine, that represents the blood of Jesus. In a few moments, we're going to be focusing in on that and focusing in on the treasure of what that represents. The treasure of the fact that Jesus came, gave up all of what he had in heaven to become a man, to come and live amongst us, to be tempted like we are tempted, and yet not sin. We're going to be focusing on the treasure of what Jesus did when he suffered. He died on the cross. He rose again. And because of what he did, you and I can experience forgiveness of sin. We can experience an encounter with him. That's a pretty important treasure to focus on. Pastor Ed said right at the very beginning, where your treasure is, there your heart, your soul will be also. We're going to be doing that in a moment. We're going to be focusing on what, on, on, what, on what happened and what took place and allowing that treasure to kind of take hold of our life again. But before we do that, there may be someone here this morning. In fact, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's someone here this morning that needs to focus in on that treasure for the very first time. Love God. Allow their love for God to shape their lives and their love or for, for life around about them. That's been so clearly portrayed and shared with us this morning. Where do you stand with that? Only an answer you can answer. Where do you stand in your relationship to the treasure that Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done for us? In a few moments, I'm going to invite us all to pray a prayer. I ask you to repeat this prayer after me. Very simple prayer. But it's as we pray that prayer, and if you're praying it this morning for the very first time, as you saying, God, from my heart, I, from my soul, I want to focus on the treasure, love God, and love what you did. Allow that truth to come into my life. It'll be the beginning, the starting, the beginning process in your life of experiencing, as Pastor Ed said, the standing righteous before God beginning process starting place so would you bow your heads with me this morning and I'm just going to invite you to pray again very simple prayer just repeat this prayer after me and if you're praying it this morning and you're sensing the Holy Spirit by the way if you're being drawn this morning if you're feeling that I need I need Jesus I need to focus on that treasure that's the Holy Spirit that's nudging you that's convicting you and as we pray that prayer this morning, as you pre- repeat this prayer after me, something will ha- happen in your life, a miracle. The Word of God refers to as being born again, that starting process in your life of redirecting your life to Him. So would you repeat these simple words after me? Dear Lord Jesus, something in my heart, in my soul, 
tells me I need you. I now confess my sin. I now repent of my sin. And by faith, ask you to come into my life as my Savior and as my Lord.